Hola, and welcome to a new episode of Oral Fixation. I am your host, Pia Cruzalegui. My next guest is not only a gifted musician, but her playing of the violin has the power to make you reach within in very special ways. Ari Urban is a well-accomplished musician with a roster of performances with Chick Corea, Bobby McFerrin, Gloria Estefan, Dave Grusin, George Benson, Andrea Bocelli, Johnny Mathis, Evanescence, and Michael Bublé. She performed on NPR's Tiny Desk with Matt Jones Orchestra featuring PJ Morton. She recorded for John Legend, Kirk Franklin, Legacy, Jesse J, and Dion Warwick. Most recently, she has performed with Wycliffe John, Corey Henry, Luke James, Angelique Kidjo, Tanga Debangas, and Jacob Collier. And the list goes on. But for Ari, her new compositions and what she calls music medicine is a path to self-compassion and inner liberation. And this is the reason why I am interviewing her today. I am incredibly delighted to introduce award-winning, classically trained violinist, sound healing facilitator, independent recording artist, composer, and one of my favorite people, Ari Urban. So here we go. Thanks for being here. I want to start by asking you about Yo-Yo Mom. Sure. I just want to express my deep gratitude. My heart feels like it's bursting open uh, being here with you, getting to see one of my oldest and dearest friends um, who's known me <laughs> very long time in the very beginnings of me finding myself. And actually, the year I met you, I'm just recalling right now, was the year that I really started exploring mindfulness as a means for my music career. And we really uh, nurtured each other's yeah, uh, passion for spirituality and mindfulness and all that. So I just want to express my gratitude for you inviting me on your podcast. I'm so delighted to be here. <laughs> this has been sort of like long waiting for it. We had to postpone the dates because you had to travel to Italy I think I got COVID, so, but, but I'm actually glad things happen for a reason. I, at first, I remember scheduling you because I knew I felt that if anything would fail, it would be with a friend, with someone that, you know, that I trust to look like a fool. And, uh, and yes, I know like I am a seasoned podcaster. It's been only like 11 interviews in, I think, but. It's definitely prepared me for this moment a little bit, um, <laughs> a, lot, a lot to learn along the way on my end. But, um, but so I really want to ask you, I, I know one of the people that you have worked with is Yo-Yo Ma. He mentored you into something that you ended up pursuing. And so I want to ask you about that mentorship and about that experience. Sure. Um... So in 2015, I was a freelance musician and I, in Chicago, and I was also one of the members of the Civic Orchestra of Chicago, which is a professional training orchestra under the guise of the Chicago Symphony. So while I was there in my two-year fellowship, uh, Yo-Yo Ma was the musical director. So he would come in a few times a year um, and he would have public discussions with us and also with other artists to expand our minds around what it means to be a musician and how that relates to your direct community that you're in. So essentially what happened was one day we, um, there was an event just for civic musicians uh, to witness a conversation between Yo-Yo Ma and Theaster Gates, who is a really prominent artist in Chicago. 
and does incredible work in terms of, um, I mean, one part of his work is revitalizing abandoned houses on the south side of Chicago and turning them into community centers for people. And so long story short, I'm even getting chills just remembering because it was one of the most powerful conversations I've ever witnessed. And I had already been in my own personal journey of pursuing mindfulness, honestly, as a means to just continue being a performer because when I was in undergrad, essentially overnight, I started experiencing really severe performance anxiety, and it essentially robbed my joy of being on stage for the majority of my 20s. <laughs> um, and I was you know, constantly performing, but I didn't feel safe in my body. I didn't feel free to express myself in the way I did outside, you know, off, off stage. So, so essentially, I was already, there was already a hunger brewing inside me of wanting to do more with my career as a musician other than just being a performer. And so the timing was absolutely perfect. And in this conversation, they were really posing a lot of questions to the musicians around our role in society as musicians and as artists and our responsibility to really keep that in mind in terms of what we're, what we're doing with our work. So long story short, it was one of those light bulb moments and it just clicked for me that I really wanted to create a program at that time for my civic colleagues who were taking orchestra auditions and I wanted to create a program to fuse music and mindfulness so that they had tools that they could go to directly that could help them calm their nerves, you know, and calm their body and calm the adrenaline that inevitably happens when you're in high pressure situations like that. So at the end of the conversation, I was really nervous, but like really emotional because it just felt like one of those destined moments in life. And I went up to him and I essentially told him what I just mentioned that I, that I really want to fuse music and mindfulness for myself and for others as a means of healing self doing self healing work and he lit up and he was totally you know down to have an interview with me not an interview but like a meeting to learn more about what i was thinking and it was a short and sweet you know get together but he was so supportive and really gave me that <sighs> that last oomph of confidence that I needed, you know? So he, and he's a big dreamer, of course. So he's like, you, he's like, everyone in the world needs this, not just musicians. He's like, you need to go to the mayor's office of Chicago and you need to go to the police station. He's like, you need to, you should start a foundation for this work. So of course, at that time I was like, okay, like, okay, eventually I'll get there. But it was, I mean, I felt on top of the world after that because I have so much respect for him, not only as a musician, obviously growing up listening to him and you know, he's one of the main classical idols of the world, but just his personhood, like he, the way he leads with his heart and the way he makes everyone feel who's around him is so heart-centered. And that's really the crux of my work is using music to show others that we can actually live more in our hearts and not in our heads and therefore have a more connected experience with ourselves and with everyone around us. So that's essentially what happened, which got me going on, on creating my own my own offerings yeah so what happened next what happened next was <laughs> a long road that's led me to this moment i mean essentially i created a four-week course for my civic colleagues that was talked about um being nurtured unfortunately never got off the ground fully but i proved to myself that i was able to curate um systems essentially right so i created a four-week course kind of leading guiding teaching guiding principles of what mindfulness is and how we can use our breath, body scans, um, and just basic awareness in general to feel like we have governance over our own internal state of being in any moment. So in that moment, because 
at that time, because I was still really immersed in the classical world, I was gearing it towards classical musicians. Uh, but shortly after that, once I graduated from Civic and started doing studio work with Matt Jones, who's an incredible string arranger based in Chicago. Um, yeah, I, my world started opening up and I just continued my own internal passions and curiosities of learning not only mindfulness practices for healing, but somatic practices as well, really understanding that our bodies are mostly water and water holds memory. And so we hold every experience we've ever had in our lives in our body and honoring the importance of of practices that can help us really get in tune with with our body and our minds and our hearts and realizing that it's all one, essentially one organism that's, yeah, in a dance at all times. <laughs> okay. If I recall correctly, around that time, you were really pumped. You were very excited. It gave you, I think, almost a green light, right, to, to move forward. And you applied for a couple of grants and you got them. Um, and didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> I did get one grant in Chicago. Um, <laughs> you know I have a terrible memory, so I could for people. Remember you got the three arts, you applied for three arts so that you can create the program on mindfulness. Is, right. Am I wrong? No, I remember that. I was um I actually didn't apply, but I was blessed to be anonymously nominated. Oh, you were nominated. Yes, you were nominated. I was doing for their make a wave grant. Um, yeah, so that was, that was cool. That was, you're right. That was the first public recognition, um, I got of my work. And that was three years yeah. after, um, that meeting with Yo-Yo. Yeah. Yes. So you, you mentioned a couple of things here. One of them is the role of the artist. Clearly you are seeing yourself as being more than just a musician. Mm -hmm. And so you mentioned creating this program that would assist other fellows in your in your immediate program at first and then you've you've expanded from that so can you tell me a little bit more how you see the role of the artist beyond what's expected of them because i feel a lot of times people are only really seeing the peripheral aspect of it the the storefront and there is so much more that happens behind the processes and So what is that like? And and I think maybe I'm asking you this because I want to expand in this, uh, the principles of mindfulness and this journey that you have taken since then. And I would say even before that. Yeah, thanks. You just, I mean, yeah, you just spoke to an important point. I think the role of the artist, in my view, is honoring the totality of what it means to be human. And as you said, you know, people see the final product, right? They see the musician on stage or they see the painting hung on the wall. And I think what I'm really curious and interested in exploring in a more public setting is not only the storytelling of the artist's personal journeys themselves and how they got to that space, because there's, I, I mean, it, it can't be underestimated the power of hearing one struggles in another, especially someone you know, um, artists are public figures, right? So people look to them as an example in whatever way reflects parts of themselves. So essentially, I am obsessed with exploring specifically the aspects of being human that we are societally taught to reject, repress, feel shame about, um, feel guilt about, you know, and that could be anything from anger to sadness, to rage, to feelings of self-doubt, self-inadequacy. I mean, these are all 
there's nothing more universal in our human experience than the experience of being an emotional being, right? In my opinion. <laughs> and, and I feel so blessed that my medium is music because music is vibration and vibrations are also what we are made out of. We have 30 trillion cells in our bodies that are constantly vibrating and resonating at specific frequencies. And that's why people can use music to either, you know, if they're sad, they can use music to soothe those parts of them that just need to sit in that sadness or grief, you know? And on the other end, you can use music to uplift yourself and to completely change your mood or state of being. So for me, it's like one of my, the, the most recent grant that I was awarded in 2020 was for my project called The Art of Being Human. So it was uh, an experience that's still an offering of mine where I combine live, you know, concert-like meditative music with guided meditation as well as sound healing. And for me, the intention in that was to honor that in any space, whether it be a gallery, whether it be a show, every single person who's present matters like they every single person has a biofield that is influencing the rest of the room so i really want to start breaking the barrier between performer and, and audience member because i think it's extremely empowering for people to remember that they do just their presence alone does make a difference for better or for worse right like if someone comes to an event in a really shitty mood like people are going to feel that even if they're not aware of what they're feeling and i think and i think that's the point it's like we need, I, I want to honor because of my journey of having performance anxiety and no shade to the institutions that I was at, but like there were not the re resources that I needed at that time, which is why I had to go find it myself, you know? And these are like really established music schools um, that just were totally missing the mark of having the support that was needed for literally the crux of <laughs> our major, which was performing. And anyone, you know, whether it's sitting down to do a podcast, whatever it may be, like the body has a physiological response that we're not taught how to manage. So the reason I got so inspired and, and again, I said earlier, it was like, it felt like a necessity for me. Cause it's like, okay, I'm a, like all I've ever done was perform. And now it's getting to the point where it's so painful that I'm like considering not performing anymore. Like this is intense, you know? And so my personal journey was the catalyst for what I'm doing now and also normalizing the vast range of the human experience and to yeah, foster shared vulnerability and shared intimacy and to create spaces where people actually feel that they can express uh, parts of themselves that normally we don't. And to like, I'm getting chills as I speak because I've been in these spaces and it's a felt, it's a direct experience that everyone can feel, you know, when people's hearts are open to receive another without judging, without criticizing. And if there is that going on, then it's just a reflection of where we have to give ourselves more love. You know, everyone that we ever meet is a mirror and will reflect different parts of ourselves. So essentially my work as the artist, I believe in humanity is to use music as an object of meditation so that people can become more intimate with all parts of themselves and specifically the parts that they have rejected and kind of distance themselves from. And through that, that's what I call interactivism. So, so it's like finding the wars in, within and then through that activation of finding peace within that interactivism will inevitably come out into outer activism through the way we treat others, specifically others that, you know, come from a different background or whatnot. So that's really 
the, the crux of my mission is, is what I just said, inner activism as a means for outer activism using music and mindfulness and awareness. Okay, I'm podcast over. Just, <laughs> everything has been said. I remember music.com, bye. <laughs> I just got on a roll, yeah. I love it. I love it. I absolutely love it. I think that um, back in, in the fall, when you were here in Chicago the last time, I yeah. went to this concert that you had with Preston Click. And yes, I've listened to you play before in, you know, for diverse audiences, which is like your number one thing is like, okay, well, if you don't like classical music, fine. You can find her playing somewhere else as well because she does it all. But, but in this particular occasion, it was precisely this uh, sacral music. Am I saying it correctly? Mm -hmm music was this at uh the chapel of sacred sounds at his place yes yes okay yeah. um, so it was yeah, like a sound meditation yes concert. and <laughs> i remember i was and i've heard you play before and this is not new to me and so i was taken by i, I think i just allowed myself to go but i remember feeling so embraced by the sounds and i think it was possibly the location as well but your playing was just so rich and beautiful complemented by the sounds that Preston provided for this presentation. And I just felt like, oh my God, it just felt so good. I was, I was crying, but I, I wasn't sad. I just, it was just felt so, so beautiful. So I, I felt like I was in another world. I can't remember. It was just a very special concert. And I think that's what you're talking about here. Yes, and I just want to thank you for expressing that. That means so much to me as your friend, but also you use the word held. You felt held by the music. And in most of my bios online, I and it's funny, I didn't say it earlier like this, but the intention behind the music I create is to act as a safe and sacred container for the listener. So literally like you're, you're you know, you're like in a nest or you're in a hammock, you're like wherever in the womb, like anywhere where you feel completely safe to surrender to yourself. And the fact that you felt that is so cool. It's so yeah. cool. That's how I felt. I remember just closing my eyes and it, you know, like I felt I was being in a womb. Uh, it felt good. <laughs> okay. So of course you have grown since then and alongside with all of this, you continue to play in studio with with really cool people. I was looking at your resume and the updates are like, oh my God, this is great. <laughs> so it hasn't stopped, right? I remember one of the things that you wanted to do was to be um, a studio musician. And of course, I don't know that has really fully happened, but I know that you are constantly being called to participate in recordings and so forth. And so I'm asking you, how do you see that at this point? Um, I mean, in full transparency, obviously, for artists during the pandemic, things slowed down, right? So my entire performing career kind of came to a halt for for a year. I will say I was so lucky to to be back in Miami during that time because I play with the New Deco Ensemble here in Miami, which is Miami's 21st century genre-bending chamber orchestra, and they epitomize what I had dreamed up when I was in Chicago years ago of an orchestra that does it all and plays all types of music with all types of artists. And so just to say, I was very lucky that starting in 2021, 
early that year, we, we weren't doing live concerts because we weren't able to, but we were live streaming our concerts. So now there's a whole library of the concerts we did on YouTube from, from that time. So in terms of like recording, recorded music that I've done, um, it's been mostly with New Deco the past few years. I did move back to Miami after living in Chicago for six years, which is where I did the majority of my studio work with Matt Jones. Um, so all to say I'm in, it's a moment of flux for me. I mean, I definitely feel like this moment in my life and career is a huge transitory moment, which is exciting, but also is full of unknowns. <laughs> but my love and my passion for studio music has not died at all. I'm constantly putting out the vibes to, to be called for things, but Unfortunately, in Miami, there's really not a studio scene happening here. And I do have a colleague in Nashville that tries to get me up there when our schedules align. That hasn't happened yet. Um, and I have connections in New York, Chicago, and LA. So I trust, I mean, this is a huge part of my life in general. And the work I do is like trusting divine timing and just allowing things to flow and trusting that even if I'm not in a specific line of work, just because I haven't done studio music in a few years doesn't mean that it won't be coming around again. So yeah, that's that's where I am with that. But I am doing a lot of my own personal recording um, yes. studio music. So I, I almost just forgot, like I last fall when I was in Italy, I recorded my first solo EP of original music in a studio there, which was really <laughs> exciting for me to do it all on my own, you know, with an engineer. And I just want to, with that being said, I do want to give a shout out to Preston Click, who has been my producer and co-writer for the past three years, who's Chicago-based. That collaboration really f allowed me to flourish into creating my own music as well. So I want to give him a shout out. Um, we've created, I mean, dozens of songs together. So, yeah. so many songs that still haven't been released. So I want to thank him for that. And now I'm in a new chapter. I'm in a new moment of... Um, yeah, putting out my own original music. So that EP that I recorded last fall will be released this fall, which is very exciting. Um, and then I'm also going to be flying to Phoenix, Arizona in August to record a meditation album with a really renowned sound healer there. So things are Amazing. things are happening. It's just, yeah. So are you going to be coming back to Chicago? In this moment, I don't know. Um, I don't have a timeline with anything, but of course I love Chicago My goal, honestly, is for us to curate live experiences there so that I can have the means to go up there and, you know, make that happen as, as many as much as I can during the year. So ideally, if I could come up two to four times a year and have some events lined up, that would be amazing. Yeah. How hard is it to be a musician and sustaining yourself as a musician now that you mentioned? <laughs> now that you stepped into it. <laughs> I mean, I consider myself a pretty optimistic person. <laughs> um, I will say, like, you know, reality hits. There, as you know, as any artist knows, there are different seasons and different moments where we're focusing on different things. And in full transparency, this moment for me is definitely one of focusing more on how I can, through my personal work, create a consistent income for myself that's not dependent on my freelance work because it's very seasonal and it's and it's not it's not reliable or predictable in the way I want or need so that has been yeah a big a big theme for me right now is is how can I stay in my own integrity the offerings that I have trusting that there are people out there that want what I have to offer and I've been doing mindset work with that you know because I've been catching that I have certain beliefs that 
people, because we have to remember like 2015 was eight years ago. And at that time, mindfulness was kind of starting to become, you know, recognizable, but it was no, nowhere near the, you know, as trendy as it is now. <laughs> so with that being said, like, yeah. I, yeah. And so I think I still have parts of me that are like, oh, people, people won't want to invest in that. You know what I mean? Or they won't understand the power of vibrational healing through music or mindfulness. So I think I'm, I'm in a moment of really transitioning my own mindset and expectations around trusting that people, the right people who, who are ready to receive what I have to offer will, will be coming in. And with that being said, um, right now I'm focusing on my solo offerings of individual sessions using right. music and meditation for self-healing. So, yeah. I think that's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay. So like I said in my intro, you practically born are born with a violin in your hand. <laughs> or maybe you pick it up somewhere along the way, but you were a young child. How old were you? I was seven and a half when I first started learning the violin, AKA a, a cardboard box and a marker for the bow, because we had to get some technique down before the real violins came. But I will never forget that day. I think I was around eight when I actually played for the first time. And I will say that my, my teacher reminded me pretty recently, actually my first teacher that <laughs> like, like she just like put it in my hands and I just like knew what to do. And she brought in this other teacher and was like, this girl has definitely played before. And personally, I do believe in reincarnation and us all having gifts that we come in with. So for me, it's like, as you're saying, I, it feels like I was born with it because once it was in my hands, I knew that it was going to be in my life forever. There was no question that that was, um, you know, the, what I was going to do. Okay. So you, you had the, the, the cardboard violin and you start playing. So fair to say that you had a calling for music. Yes. from a very young age. Did you play anything before age seven? No. How did your mom realize that you were a little musician in the making? <laughs> um, yeah, my, I mean, my twin brother started violin with me. Basically the whole class started together because one of the parents was a violin teacher and offered free lessons. So, but everyone, you know, people were dropping like flies after the first couple of days. They were like, this is too hard, screw this. And I think it became evident when I had the violin and my teacher would just play like she'd play twinkle and I could just play it back to her. And so I, my ear, I mean, obviously she helped me train my ear, but it, it started off as a very fun light. Like we would literally just be walking around this courtyard, like me following her and just playing together. And I think that be, it was pretty obvious then that I had, you know, an ear for music. And then, and then she taught me how to read music shortly after that. And I had a natural affinity for both pretty equally which is important to be a classical musician, you know? So yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. That's amazing. Okay. So when do you get your first like break? Um, like growing up. Yes. Growing up. I forgive me because again, my memory is not the best. You know, I, there were things like honors festival and solo and chamber ensemble. So there were like these mini local competitions that my teacher you know, had me apply to because it was very normal for the music community to do that. Right. And they're pretty low stakes. I mean, I can't remember exactly what the awards were called, but like I would usually get recognized in some capacity or another. And that when I entered public school in fifth grade, because I was in Montessori school before that, that was the first time I was in public school and the first time I was in an orchestra. And so there, like I quickly rose to the 
beginning of the section, things like that. But I won my first, I, this is interesting just because it speaks to my character and my stubbornness of knowing what I want and what I don't want. So when I was 14, my second teacher um, encouraged me to apply for a competition at my high school. And as a freshman, the competition was open to all ages. So typically freshmen like wouldn't apply because you're competing against seniors or college students. But I applied and I and I won that. So that was, I would say, the first like big break in terms of me playing with a solo with an orchestra. And then the following year, I won another uh, solo concerto competition. And I'll tell you, by the second one, I was like, okay, this is cool. But like, my teacher was really kind of pressuring me to become a soloist. And the life of a soloist is very lonely. It's very isolated. And it's very... I hope this doesn't come off wrong, but it's very based in the ego. Like, I'm just going to say it. You know what I mean? It's like all about you being the soloist. And, and, and my experience of that felt bizarre because here I was playing my heart out, but with my back to like a hundred musicians behind me that I wanted to be making music with directly. You know what I mean? I wanted to be looking at them and I wanted to be communicating. And, and that's why I love string quartet so much is because that's a way where you can have those solo moments, but you're really part of a team and you're part of a group that's bigger than yourself. So all to say after the second competition, I was like, this is cool, but like, this is not what I want to do. And of course my right. teacher was, pleased, <laughs> but yeah, I think it was good. I always felt, I never had the drive of a lot of my colleagues to be the best vert, uh, like in terms of virtuosity, playing the hardest things and, and, basing my worth off of that, like that never made sense to me because music was always a refuge. And I didn't realize it, but the older I get and I look back at being in rehearsals or being in like, that was my refuge from life and from the chaos of life. And there I could just, just play my heart out literally. <laughs> okay, so what, what kind of chaos could a 13, 14, 15 year old experience? that you had to find um, refuge in the violin. And I'm just, you know, this is just very, you know, it's, I'm asking this with candor because I, I do know what it takes to be an, a teenager, but, but, you know, I'm yeah, it's just a question. Teenager, yeah. On its own, it's already, there's a lot happening in the body. And I think for me, yeah, it would, there was, <laughs> there was internal chaos. Cause one thing I didn't mention earlier is like the reason I'm so, passionate about um, essentially learning how to cultivate emotional resiliency through music is because I'm an extremely emotional person and I have a lot of fire and I have a lot of feelings and my I'm I was very moody as a child you know I could go from one space to another like that whether it be provoked from the outside or not was another story but I love my family but it was not a peaceful calm environment at home and so and I and I felt yeah, I felt responsible for the people around me. So, so that, mm -hmm. that led to an internal sense of chaos of not feeling at peace or not knowing how to be at peace because no one around me knew how to be at peace. And I think that's pretty common for a lot of people in their families, you know, and, and we all, all families are messy as we know, and their internal dynamics that, that makes things challenging. <laughs> so, right. yeah. So, something, something to be said about finding refuge in your art, because I think that in general, having this aspect to our lives as, as, mus as a musician or as an artist, you have an outlet, 
where mm -hmm. you can, you know, filter some of these experiences and then either bring them back out more beautiful or, or help you develop. Like, right. And with that um, being said, yeah, it's even the art, like, let's say, yeah, I'd play something sad if I was sad. And that in itself was the medicine that I needed to then move on from that feeling. Right. Mm -hmm. So as you're saying, there's so many ways to use our art form as refuge and also to know ourselves, right. To have those mm -hmm. moments of self introspection, just by nature of doing our art, we're becoming more familiar with ourselves and therefore hopefully cultivating more self-compassion through that, through our art. <laughs> yes. I, yeah. So would you say that people, humanity in general would be better off if they could have an artistic outlet? And I'm not even asking you from any point of view because yeah. no one here in this conversation is an expert, but just, you know, from observation and, and, and your own sure. experience in your, in your own journey as a, as a violinist and, and musician. As a musician, I do believe that everyone has an inner musician within them. We all were given a voice, you know, we all have the ability to tap into our own soul song, if you want to call it that, you know, and that could be singing in the shower. That could be singing songs we know already. That could be just humming. I mean, literally humming in itself is so nurture, nourishing and nurturing for the body. It literally acts when we hum, like, let's do it. Like I can. Yes. You feel it vibrating. Yep. And so that literally is acting as an internal massage for the nervous system when we hum. So that's like one of my hacks that I always share when I'm doing events, because we can start at such a minute place, you know, because of course you'll meet people and they're like, oh, I'm not artistic. I don't, I'm not creative. I don't do that stuff. And that's fine. We all have our different personalities and our own right. interests. However, I believe creativity and, and having an artistic practice could be mindfully walking for 10 minutes a day. You know what I mean? And just being with your body and, and noticing what you're seeing on the floor and noticing a lizard or noticing a bird, like the sense of connection to, to everything around us, to nature, in my opinion, is what activates the inner artist. So I do think that people, people who fish, people who, I mean, literally any hobby, anything that naturally activates a sense of curiosity and excitement for someone is can be considered an artistic practice for them and i think i think again that looks different for everyone and the level of intensity of, of those practices are endlessly varied but at the end of the day we all have ways of nourishing parts of us that nothing outside of us could ever nourish yeah does that makes sense beautiful no, I think I agree with you because I, I, I don't know, we, we've been friends for a while. So it's, it's these yeah. conversations that we have, it's, I mean, what we're having today is just an extension of everything that we always talk about. Right. And, and I agree with you. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder what other people are going to think about it. I don't care. <laughs> um, so here you are 14, 15 and you're doing pardon. No, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, you can interrupt me anytime, please. Well, I just wanted to say on um, what you just said, like even about, like I, I, I'm, I'm in a constant practice of not quote caring what people think about me or what I have to say or, or even my music. 
And yeah. I, and I've been forced to reflect on that just because what I do is so niche and I acknowledge that and I acknowledge that it's not for everyone, you know, and there are going to be some people who listen to my music and do have a profound experience. Um, and then right. there are going to be those that are totally turned off by it and don't want to listen. And for me, as I think for any artist, one of the most difficult things, practices, but also one of the most liberating is again, honoring the parts of our human that do do react to rejection or whatever it may be and holding those parts and nurse, you know, like soothing them, being like, they're there, it's okay. And then through that, um, the amount of fucks that we give just continue to diminish, you know, because, right. because it's impossible to be for everyone. And I think for a long time, I have this, you know, I, I have a tendency to be perfectionistic in my thinking and in how I want to show up in the world. And that has been a very stifling thing for me, you know, because at the end of the day, we, yeah, we're all different and things are going to resonate for others and not for others. And, and that's all okay. And, mm -hmm. and actually the last thing I'll say about this, because of my practice of meditation and, and specifically Vipassana meditation, which is the original form of what we now call mindfulness in the West is the practice of activating the observer, which is the part in each of us that is pure conscious awareness, right? That part of us right now that's aware that we're sitting here having this conversation and through the activation and practice of the observer, which is what we're doing in meditation when we're watching our breath or we're, you know, body scanning is disidentification. So actually I'm, it's ironic because in one way I'm becoming more close to my human parts and in another, I'm actually gaining perspective on my personality. And therefore that helps, that practice helps me take things less personally. Does that make sense? Yes. I think that yeah. it's beautiful that you have unpacked this because I think us uh, in general, as artists, we do get, we get a lot of rejection. I mean, for every, yeah. for every inch oh. of success, you are like, you know, unless you are, you know, born with like the silver platter in front of you and just sort of like given, uh, you know, uh, easiness through, through life. Most uh, artists, I think, do experience a huge level of rejection. You know, no, I, I don't like your work or no, you are not, you know, you did not get selected for this exhibition or this grant or this or, or a job or whatever. You know, there's like a huge amount of that happening. And this is not to say that this is true for the art world. I think it happens in general, but just understanding that those instances are just part of, of how to move forward, of how to take it as a grain of salt and just kind of move on and empower yourself through other mechanisms. And I'm with you. I think that, you know, nurturing to, to your own spirit, to the mind, to your heart, and to like having this connection with the world around us and nature and being one with it. It's so important and valuable in order to have less of, of those contrasts affecting you, right? Those, those, those instances. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. So, okay. So here you are 14, 15, you are clearly standing out in your violin class and you are now in high school and then you enter college and now you are you, you're all this time you are training as a classical musician, correct? Yes. So what is that experience like? What I know that while you were in college, you not only had the opportunity to be in this um, quartet, 
but then you also meet award-winning musicians and you actually have experiences on stage with them and recording with them and maybe being mentored or whatnot. What, what was that like? I mean, you're so young dealing in an adult yeah. world is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> it was so fun. <laughs> it, it felt, um, yeah, it kind of felt like a dream because I will say I, I started learning jazz music when I was 15. So while I was in school focusing on classical music, I also had opportunities through various mentors and groups to start learning how to improvise in the language of jazz. And I'm only prefacing with that because that really gave me the confidence and comfort of being able to be on stage with someone like Chick Corea or Bob McFerrin and be like, let's go. You know, obviously I had music that I was playing. I wasn't there like jamming with them, but still um, it felt, it felt really good. I mean, I, I will, I mean, the, I'm just trying to think of the timing. Yeah. So 18, 19 were my first couple years in college and I was in this quartet. Um, it was the first year of this, scholarship program where they gave a full ride to a quartet and I was in that and it was amazing but it was very high pressure situation and I do think that led to the performance anxiety because it was like constant face of the school and being around all the heaviest donors and all that with that being said the moments of being on stage um, with the Henry Mancini Institute Orchestra which is an orchestra that was originally in LA obviously named after Henry Mancini um, and and our dean, Shelley Berg, came from LA and brought the orchestra there. So all to say, it was a really exciting moment for the school as well to be expanding um, what they had to offer because there was no other college, to my knowledge, that had a you know, semi-professional orchestra working with some of the greats um, of all time. So I, I had a ball and it felt like Looking back, it just instilled so much hope and confidence in me because it kind of, I mean, those experiences did feel like they were just being handed to me on a silver platter because I was already there at the school. And of course I was just one part of this big orchestra, but I was a part of it, you know? And that was so, um, so inspiring. I think for, for that, let me see, that plant, those experiences planted the seed for the studio work I wanted to do later on, for example, you know, so me going after that in Chicago and then playing with other musicians was because of the experience I had not only performing live with some of these, but with Gloria Stefan, for example, we recorded her entire uh, album live in the New World Center on Miami Beach. So it wasn't, so it was like cameras and, and like the whole shebang. It wasn't just like being in a studio and just playing your instrument. So it gave me a lot of exposure um, to, to different aspects of the business of being a professional and showing up and just playing your ass off and being confident in that. So yeah, I, it was, I mean, it was, it's, it was one of the biggest blessings that period. Yeah. Great. What was the most difficult, um, aspect of moving around in, in that environment as a young, I mean, um, you, you were what, 18, 19, I mean, when I was 18 and 19, I was like a little girl, <laughs> like mentally and, you know, even physically, I looked very young. I always looked very young. So when I was 18, I looked like 11. And <laughs> I, I think um, 
I, oh God, I'm like, I'm remembering even a moment with Joshua Bell, right? Who obviously being a violinist, you, you know, I grew up hearing his recordings, but being around these people who I, I was so desperate to be seen by them. <laughs> like I just wanted to be seen and acknowledged. And I think, you know, young people, or even at this age, I, that's still something I work with, you know, feeling like, I'm a funny person because I have these two parts. Like one of one part of me is like genuinely satisfied with kind of being part of a bigger thing and in a sense being invisible. And then there's another part of me that's like, look at me, like I want to be the star and I want to be in the in the spotlight. So I think that time. Wow, this is really interesting, this question, just because I really haven't reflected on that time of my life like ever like this. And I'm actually right. feeling into I'm feeling into how being around stars and people who know their worth and carry themselves as a, in a certain way and have their own distinct style, you know, and just like have their own personal swag, how that actually gave me, they were planting seeds for me to eventually become an artist myself. Cause at that time I had no idea that I would ever be composing my own music, let alone having my own solo career in this niche, like meditative music, you know, sphere um mm -hmm. and i think it really looking back being around quote stars um who knew their worth and knew knew that they were badasses and what they had to offer like that really was helpful for me yeah and to be acknowledged by by some of them too you know and in, in a personal way even at 20 like them like wanting to have conversations with me you know real like right. real deep conversations too I, that was an important reflection point to show me that I did, I wasn't just like a stupid college student that didn't have anything to offer. I don't think you were a stupid college student. I've known Ari through her college years, so I didn't think that you were a stupid college student. Yeah. Okay. So what were you as a child? I'm not trying to like, I'm not trying to go dark, but I really don't remember my childhood. So I, like no. what I've been told is that I was very strong-willed from the moment I came out the womb. <laughs> like, okay. very strong. I, and I knew, I always knew what I needed and I made sure that I got what I needed, is what I've it's been interesting told. interesting because uh, that's, I think that's how you are now, right? It is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I never left you. <laughs> it, I forgot, she, I forgot about her for some years, but... I do think I no, I think she came back like after I got out of school, you know, after I graduated with my master's in music and I brought the, I, the timing of that was ironic because I was like, oh, now after doing all this schooling and being in all this debt, I now realize that I don't want to be a classical musician. Amazing. Um, so, yeah, I think that's when I knew that I, I couldn't follow anyone else's rule book and I don't like being told what to do. And And with that being said, like, I can, like, I still play in orchestras. I still have, you know, as an independent contractor, I have bosses that are friends that give me work, but, but I, I, there was always a hunkering that there was more for me to do in the world besides the institutions that already existed and the limits that they represented. So. And that's why she's my friend. <laughs> 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 okay. <laughs> Okay, so I have a couple of more questions. Um, yeah. So what's next for Ari Urban? Um, in this moment, I am here in Miami for about a month and I am working on 
I'm prepping the release of my EP that'll be released in the fall. I'm prepping some merch. Um, I'm working on, I'm working on how to kind of blast, like let people know about my private offerings um, to have private clients because I really, the work that I have done with people individually has been really potent. And I feel there's just, there's a new desire within me to serve people on a deeper level besides group experiences, which I still do. And I still love, um, I do, you know, these events in Miami with this really, this pioneer who, who pioneered his own <clears throat> type of breath work to have people become more aware of, of really utilizing the breath as an anchor to transform all aspects of their life. So we're doing some cool, you know, collaborations together. And then I'm prepping, yeah, to go to the Southwest for the first time. I'm going to be going to Prescott Valley to record a full-length album in four days. <laughs> um, that'll be with a percussionist who uses really powerful instruments, percussion instruments, to create trance-like states for the listener. Um, and then I'm going to be improvising on those tracks. And I just want, with that being said, I, I you know, that album that we're creating, his name is Byron Metcalf. Uh, we and he has a lot of music out for those who are interested in checking him out. But our intention is to create a trance-like state, right? So what does that mean? Essentially, just allowing the music to take people into an altered state. And so when you mentioned earlier the event at Preston's, when you heard our music and you felt like you were going somewhere else, like that, <clears throat> that is a big part of of the music I do. And and allowing people to explore their inner worlds and to realize that there is a lot of territory that one can explore that can really expand our sense of, of, of being human on this planet that can be kind of heavy and intense. So, uh, um, yeah, I'll be doing that. <laughs> Let's see what else. Yeah. No, go ahead. Uh, did, the did only you, other thing right now. Did you mention to me that you have a, a new, a new album out? Yeah, I have, I call it an EP. I mean, you can call it an album, but it's five tracks that I record. The one that I recorded last fall is what- Oh, okay, yes, me. maybe that's the one. Yeah, so I was, yeah, I had originally planned to uh, release it in the spring, but because of life, I'm also, you know, I'm pushing that back to the fall so that I don't okay. feel rushed. So that'll be, and that's gonna be called In the Deep. That'll be my first like solo body of work. And I'm excited about that because it's not necessarily like there are a couple tracks that you could consider like relaxing and meditative, but it's really um, it's representing more of my soundtrack compositions that can be used in film and TV. Mm -hmm. So and those were some of the first recordings I ever wrote when I started, uh, you know, using logic and using recording myself. So, OK, yeah. Um, did you have to did you it was was it a, a huge learning curve trying to produce your own work <laughs> i i will say it was interesting this album because i did it in a studio i had the help of an engineer which was nice i mean he he was italian i, I speak a little bit not much at all and he his english was good enough for us to kind of understand each other but with that being said he helped me a lot obviously with the engineering and, and their whole team did the mixing and mastering um, and I will say that it is not perfect. You know, I, I value when I record, I value the overall energy and vibe of a take over the perfection of it. So you will hear in the recording, if anyone checks it out, 
that it's, you know, there are moments and they're very, I mean, I'm not trying to exaggerate them. Like they're very small and someone might not even notice them, but I think it's important because I come from the classical world where like, it was just hammered into my brain all the time. Like if you're not perfect, you're nothing <laughs> essentially. Like, it, it's a huge, um, yeah, healing process that I'm going through, through, through owning the humanness of, of the playing. You know, something to be said about um, if you're not perfect, you're nothing. I mean, that's, that's tough. Right? How, how do you move through that? Because I, I mean, I've seen you practice endlessly and I see you and, and luckily you're so talented that you get something like, like right away. But what is what does that mean for some other musicians that perhaps have to spend three times the amount of time that you that you dedicate to learning a piece for the sake of perfection? So I think that's where the anxiety comes into place, right? Totally, totally. I mean, and, and look, I'm not. I have deep appreciation for the classical world because that's where I come from and that's why I can play the way I can play. I think there are a lot and, and you can apply what I'm saying about the classical world to the world in general. So I'm just going to put that perspective out. Like, yeah, it is there are a lot of toxic cultures that are normalized in our society and specifically in the classical world, like it's normal to have toxic teachers. It's normal to like have emotionally abusive teachers. It's, or it has been at least in the past. I don't know what it has been in the past eight years. because I've been out of that game. But with that being said, it's, it's super demoralizing, you know, for, for young people who have this passion for music and want to express um, their art through classical music, which is an incredibly complex, nuanced, difficult art form. Um, and in, in the, you know, the silver lining of that is it really does, the older I get, I can see how it plays out in just the way I exist in the world and, and the nuances that I see in myself and others because of my training. But, but I think it's, it's, it can be a trap, you know, and at the end of the day, every single human needs to get real with themselves in terms of whether the output the effort that they're exerting and what they want to achieve is actually worth it to them. And we're all going to have our different, you know, different barometers of, of what is, what something's worth to us. And I think there are people like I had colleagues that genuinely loved being in the practice room three to four hours a day, just like shedding. And to me, that was like the most depressing way to live my life. I just, I always had resistance to that. And ironically, the year, and it was my first year at DePaul and I practiced more that year than I'd ever practiced in my entire life, which was four hours a day, which is a lot. And I did it to prove to myself that I could be in this, you know, high, it, it's a very great, you know, classical music school, DePaul university and people play their asses off there. So I was like, you know what? I can do this. Like I can work my way from the back of the orchestra to the front. And I did, you know, from the first year to the second year, like I did that. I won the concerto competition, but guess what? I I will never forget coming back to Miami to one of my mentors who was a jazz musician. And so he heard, he, he always heard like my original sound, you know, what made me unique from other players. And I come back and we're playing together and he stops me and he looks at me and he goes, where the fuck did your sound go? 
And that was a really big moment for me because I, he was like, you sound like a robot. And I was like, you're right. I'm playing like a robot. Um, because that, you know, that was the curriculum that I was in. That's academia. Yeah. And again, I'm not trying to throw mad shade, but like a little bit because, because yeah, it can beat the soul out of people. Like it beats the aspects of them that actually do make them unique and allow them to, uh, to imprint their own personal style onto the music that has been played for hundreds of years mostly written by all these dead white guys, you know? So I think that I started to feel, I started to feel like the pressure of that more and more as I continued going through school. And I was like, what is this actually for? Like, that's not what I'm looking for. And again, for some, that's their dream. Bless them. That's right. awesome. But I think for people who are an artist and want to say something original, it's just, it's an antiquated world at this point. Isn't that something because you really tap onto that notion of like the artist being at service off, right? Mm. So perhaps the reason why you be you have to be almost robotic to perfection, to like a machine almost, it's really because you're not playing for yourself because you you once you go into this classical world and you're playing for large orchestras and philharmonics and what so, you're really there to please the other people on the other side of the stage. And you're right. But you're a part of something that's bigger than yourself when you're in an orchestra. And I will tell you, I have moments where I really miss being in a symphony orchestra because there is actually, this is interesting. I'm getting right now that there's a direct analogy of what I was saying earlier of like, you know, connecting to nature, connecting to anything that's out bigger than us to actually make us feel really alive and connected. And the same thing for the orchestra, like the way the moments when I chose to have a, a, a mindset of, wow, I'm I'm a part of like, I am a clog in this machine, but I'm a part of this incredible machine right now of 100 people that are so in sync and so aware and so present that we are like locked in, you know, and we're in through the individual perfection of each of us playing our individual parts. We are creating this masterpiece that honestly, it generates a feeling and a vibratory field on stage that can't be matched with any other ensemble. You know what I mean? So I do have moments now. I love New Deco, but we're only a 40 piece orchestra. You know, we're not a hundred piece orchestra that can generate the sound and the power of civic orchestra, for example. So yeah, you can see it by, from both sides. And again, like that's where personality comes in too. Like some people maybe are just introverts and they genuinely get more value from being a part of something bigger than they would doing their own thing. So yeah, it depends. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I know nothing about the music industry except through some of my friends, including yourself, but behind the screen auditions, what is that like? Is that something that has been in practice recently? Is this, is this something that comes from like a hundred years ago? What is that like? Mm -hmm. You're testing my classical history here. <laughs> um, no, so yeah, let me specify that the way I'm getting high, the way I get hired for work is not this system that I'm about to talk about. So this is, these are auditions for classical orchestras. So basically, if I had stayed on the track of my education, then I would have been taking auditions around the world, like most of my colleagues, where they are called blind auditions. So these are for positions that can be tenured for like 60 years, meaning 
there can be an orchestra, especially the top orchestras, they have like one position open and like 3000 people go for it. So it's an extremely competitive, high stakes thing where if you get an orchestra job, like that's the equivalent of getting a nine to five in any other industry, you know, like t a typical job as a musician. Mm -hmm. I know we, you know, I've seen footage of orchestras from the 1930s and 40s where they're completely male orchestras. I mean, there's not right. one female in the orchestra. So I don't know exactly the decade or the date where it started to shift, but I do know by, I would say late 1960s, 70s, orchestras started to become more integrated, including women in it. And I don't know again, whether, I wanna say that there typically has been carpeted environment, you know, carpeted floor, for example, to to minimize the prejudice of healing, hearing heels or not. Mm -hmm. um, but that's been in practice now for at least four decades or blind okay. auditions. And that's just the way they do it, so that it's just based on on the playing itself and the perfection of the technique and not about how someone looks or how they present or anything mm -hmm. like that. But in the current, I mean, if we're talking about the current music industry in terms of being a freelance musician or getting studio work or playing at the Grammys, like any of these things is, is mostly word of mouth in my experience. So, you know, I've made contacts throughout my life, whether they be in college or in Chicago and even through a gig, even playing a gig with someone and them seeing that I can play, like they'll remember my name if they ever need a violinist for anything. So in a way it's really, it's quite a democratic society in terms of, being being called and being known for things because any one of my colleagues could actually hire me for something and not necessarily be the boss. You know what I mean? They right. could they could call me in for, as a string player. So and again, there's a pros and cons with that too. Right. Because if of you're course. not in the scene, how do you get in? This niche where you have been focusing your practice, which is meditational music and these productions that you're involved in, would you say that this is a much better space? a more welcoming space. I don't even know if I'm asking this correctly, but I it just made me think about opportunities. I think I know what you're saying. Yeah. I, I think there are endless ways that, you know, people who play instrument and musicians can make a living. And Chicago's a perfect example of a city who has so, I mean, limitless opportunities to play gigs. Um, and so to make a living as a musician, you know, it just depends what people want. So a lot of my colleagues, yeah, do that whole circuit and they have certain gigs that they have every year. Um, I think I, I just feel, I feel so outside of that scene now that I don't really feel like I can even speak to it in a way, just because I'm, the challenges I'm being posed with are more entrepreneurial business like challenges of creating the spaces that I want to be in because they don't exist. And that for me is honestly in moments is extremely overwhelming because not only do I have to find spaces that will want to host what I have to do, but then I have to find people and the audiences that want to, that are appropriate to, to receive what I have. So that's been, that's been tricky for me in all honesty. I'm, my personality can come off extroverted, but I'm extremely introverted in the way I exist in the world. And I don't, you know, I'm not a huge social butterfly. So it's, that's something I'm, I'm, I'm constantly navigating. Yeah. How hard is it to put together the audience for it? <laughs> I mean, it's, let me put it this way. For the depth of work that I want to do with people, like I could do 
I could promote myself as just doing like relaxing sound bath experiences and I could have that. And I do, that is one of my offerings and I, and I love doing that for people. Don't get me wrong. But I think where I feel like I'm really making a difference is with people who are ready to explore what's happening within them when they're being quote triggered by emotionally activated music, which is a lot of my music, <laughs> a lot of it, like, just like will like hit the heart and then they're feeling things and they're like, Oh my God. But then I'm there to help them guide themselves through that experience of feeling what's happening. If that makes sense, which is, that's my solo offering the art of being human, which I've done about five events over the past couple of years here. Um, and you know, I'm very, I travel a lot as you know, so also trying to solidify a base here in Miami has been challenging because I'm not even sure if I want to stay here long-term. Um, I do have my orchestra new deco here that I love and, you know, I'm playing with them all next season, but I'm very interested in continuing to travel and plant seeds in new areas and communities that might be more appropriate for the work I have to do, if that makes sense. What is one advice that you would like to give to young upcoming female musicians, artists in general? Hmm. I would say being in touch with and honoring the consistent evolution of being a woman and growing and aging and allowing, really getting clear on why we're presenting the way we are. And that could be in any capacity from what we wear, you know, clothes wise to the makeup we wear, like being really conscious of the outside influences that try to pressure us into being certain ways. And I think this moment culturally is so rich because mm -hmm. you, do, you see women who are completely reclaiming their bodies and completely reclaiming their sensuality in ways that feel true to them. And then there are others that are doing that in a completely different way. And even for me, I look back to, you know, even some of my album art that I created two years ago. And I was like, wow, that was interesting. And now I'm in a different place. And so leading, leading the relationship with self with like infinite grace and compassion and curiosity for who we're continually becoming would be my advice, because I don't think as an artist, it's possible to like, stay stagnant in a way. And I think it's a constant shedding of the conditions that have been imposed on us. And again, that could be from a conservative mindset that could be from a completely liberal mindset. There's no right or wrong in terms of what feels true to you and allowing yourself, specifically women allowing themselves to, to allow their identity to flow is for me an extremely important and liberating part of the process of being an artist that will only help enhance the art and not, not diminish it. Beautifully said. So we are approaching the end of the interview and I wanted to ask you if there's anything that you would like to add that I have not prompted you to that you would want to share. The only thing coming to mind is my project that I, is very near and dear to my heart, which is called Music Free My Heart. And this is an extension of my solo work, but this is with my business partner, Carolyn Barron, who's been a Vipassana teacher and healer and body worker for decades. So we're coming together from two vastly different generations to bring this healing work to people in the form of workshops, in the forms of retreats, um, in the form of individual sessions. We do private sessions as well. And it's essentially everything I said, and it's in the name itself, music, free my heart. It's allowing yourself to 
experience music directly and vibrationally without interpretation of the mind. Because the mind is an amazing tool, but the mind is not meant to be the master of our experience. And we live in a society that has brainwashed us into almost exclusively valuing the intellect, which has cut people off from their bodies, from their inner knowing, from their gut, from their heart, from their soul. And so our experiences are showing people that it actually can be a practice for them to notice the mind, use mindfulness to be aware of the thoughts, watching them like clouds passing by, but not getting sucked in by them and dropping, continually dropping back into the heart, into the heart. And through that, there is just a well of information and richness for every single person to tap into their own inner inner knowing, their own self healer. And so that project is really also what I'm focusing on in terms of um, creating more opportunities for us to to serve people. So amazing. And people, uh, listeners can look into this in your website. Uh, yes, we have a direct website called musicfreemyheart.com. You can go there to learn more about what we do and learn more about us. Um, and then my website is ariurban.com. You can also look at my offerings there. Amazing. Yeah. Do you have any questions for me? Um, how this interview experience was for you? I think it was amazing. It was very enriching, but I think our conversations are always driven by a lot of these things that you have shared with us. I have enjoyed it a lot and I wanted to take a moment to thank you. I'm very grateful to have you in my circle of friends, but even more thankful that there is such candor in your entire existence. And it's just beautiful to have an exchange with people like you. And so I, I cherish that a lot. I am very grateful. So thank you for opening the virtual doors to your space, to your heart and to this beautiful mind and, and your talents. Um, you're on your way. You're very, you're very beautiful. Thank you. Pia, I feel the same about you. And I also <laughs> am so grateful for our friendship and it's true. For those of you listening, we have had countless breakfasts and lunches and yes. so they're always at this intensity of, of, of exploration and candor, as you said. So thank yeah. you for inviting me. It was such a joy to just fill my heart with you. <laughs> and that's a wrap. I hope you enjoyed listening to Ari Urban. If you are curious about her music, you can find her on Spotify and check out her site at ariurban.com for live events and sound healing experiences. This conversation took place last spring and was recorded remotely using Riverside FM. For more information on this episode, please visit our website at oralfixation.art and follow us on social media at Oral Fixation Art Podcast. The music played on this episode is from Ari Urban's new album, The Deep, and it's titled Chasing Nostalgia. Until next time, ciao!